Hi there, my name is Adam Waters, and I'm the lead pastor here at Grace Bible Church in Elmhurst, Illinois. I'm just so glad that you made the decision to take us along with you this week on life's journey. Here at Grace Bible Church, we are a family of faith who seeks forgiveness, healing, and hope in Jesus Christ. Now, we might all come from different backgrounds, but each of us recognize that the tremendous needs in our lives point us to one place, to God, for His answers, His provision, and mostly, for His grace. I hope the following program gives you a new perspective on who God is, who you are, and how you too might find forgiveness, healing, and hope in our Lord Jesus. Thanks for listening. up is our Living on Mission section, and um, Michelle Agavudi is here with us today. Um, unfortunately, she is not going to be able to be up here right now sharing with us. Um, Michelle has been involved in youth ministry for a very long time, and with youth ministry comes a lot of games, and with a lot of games comes a lot of competitive children and competitive leaders. And so Michelle has suffered a number of head injuries over the years and was recently diagnosed with, a, recently within the last couple of years, diagnosed with a seizure disorder. And sometimes when that happens, you can laugh uncontrollably. And sometimes when that happens, you can cry um, kind of uncontrollably. So that is something that she's experiencing right now. So she has asked me to kind of share um, a little bit. And then after church, she's going to be outside of like Roxanne's office over there by the TVs and um, is looking forward to hopefully being able to share with you a little bit more about what the Lord is doing. Um, so for those of you who don't know Michelle, she is Judy Ellison's daughter-in-law's sister. I think that's the connection. Um, and uh, came to us while she was a studi- student at Moody. Um, and she was involved with uh, middle school ministry here um, until she was called over to Slovakia. And she works with Global Outreach International, I think is who um, she she's over there working with. And so for many years, um, she was over there doing... Um, youth camps working in schools, doing English classes, um, and in 2017 and 2018, we were lucky enough to send um, teams over to her in Nova Zamki and help out with those. So I think that there are some slides of some high school and college camps that she did. So um, when I I went both times, and I also went for a winter retreat, which was super fun. Um, And I mean, Michelle puts on a phenomenal camp. So many games, so many exciting and interactive things. Um, And uh, these kids, I think, from what I remember, in um, the the country has a history of like orthodox Christianity or Catholicism, but the current generation, I think, is a little dark to that. So getting them over out to English camps where we can um, play with them, interact with them, form relationships, uh, doing those kinds of things, and incorporate kind of Bible stories into that was a super awesome way. I know I still talk to quite a few of the students that were part of those camps. Um, So she was running like pretty full camps, like 40, 50 kids a session through the summer. Um, And then COVID hit. And uh, like we experienced here, everything also shut down in Slovakia. And um, in 2020, uh, we did, she did like a camp in a box. Um, So I know I recorded a bunch of video stuff that she used for that program. Um, But I think uh, it was a struggle to sort of keep the engagement up um, and coming and being present in person. 
That's her dog, Keela. She's very cute. I wish that she was here today. All the kids love Keela. Keela loves all the kids. Um, so transitioning from doing kids camps and youth ministry, um, I think there was kind of like some time where it was sort of like, Lord, what, what do you have for me? Um, and at, around that time is when um, things started really happening between Russia and Ukraine. And so she has now found, um, she sort of shifted ministry and is doing a lot of um, uh, outwork, or outreach with um, different um, people working with refugees from the Ukraine, um, aiding in, do you want to come up? Okay, here she comes. Michelle Akavodi, everybody. Did I do okay? Okay, you made me sound good. I'm going to try and get this out. This whole, like, you know, when you're younger, you tend to do things and not realize you're going to have to pay for it later. So um, we're going to see. I might start crying randomly again, but this is something I've learned to try and get through with the whole epilepsy and random crying of uncontrollableness. So I apologize, but again, it's something I can't control. I'm learning how to do it. Anyways, you made me sound good. See, that was perfect. Anyways, like she said, um, I'm super thankful t for you guys supporting me over the last 10 years and the fact that you've sent um, teams to us. And also, COVID had a big hit, but come January, I'm helping a new church launch a new ministry, which is super exciting. This church is so eager to learn. They've asked me to do leadership training and mentoring. So not only am I going to be working with this church, but the whole region. I'm going to be mentoring young leaders, young adults. So I'm super excited about that. Since the war, I have been helping a lot with refugees and humanitarian aid and medical aid. Um, Slovakia is right on the border. We have two borders um, connecting to Ukraine. So I've been doing a lot working with the local um, Slovak church in eastern Slovakia and so working with them actually right before I came here literally two days before um, I was in Ukraine I got to actually go to the church the church we partner with and meet them and see the people we're working with because I believe it's really important that we work with the church in Ukraine because they're the ones living there they're the ones who are ministering to other Ukrainians and so I do humanitarian and medical aid, especially medical aid for the soldiers. I was able to meet some of the commanders who are a part of that church and who are taking medical aid to other military who they have relationships with. And so not only are we working with the church, but other um, soldiers who are believers who can minister to other soldiers. And so I'm excited to get back. I love visiting, but at the same time, I'm always eager to get back and back into the ministry with this new um, youth ministry we're launching, and also I know there's a huge need for medical aid. So I want to thank you all. I hope that you might have some time to come listen to more. This is kind of just a quick share of what's going on. Um, so I will be out there you know, for about 10, 15 minutes share. Also, if you like chocolate, I have some Slovak chocolate. Slovaks like to put chocolate on the tree. So they're like kind of like ornaments. So if you come by, you can take some. But the only thing I ask is when you eat it that you pray for Slovakia. So that's my only request. But I'll be outside. Um, so please stop by. Come say hello. I know there's a lot of new faces that I don't know. So please come stop by. Pray for Michelle and her ministry. Father, we're so grateful for Michelle, um, for her love for you, for her faithfulness to you, for her willingness to trust you um, all these years, for her service to young people, for her heart for them, for her heart for the Slovakians and now the, the Ukrainians. And 
Lord, we just want to ask that you would strengthen her with power through your spirit in her ministry and give her um, great boldness in sharing uh, Jesus with the young people there and, and so many people, particularly in Ukraine, who are in need. Um, we pray, Lord, that you'd attend to her needs and bring her um, ministry partners and resources and medical supplies to uh, touch these people. And we pray, Lord, that you'd keep her eyes fixed on you and give her, continue to give her a deep sense of your presence and your, your love for her and, um, and, and a deep sense of your leading and direction. Thank you for Michelle. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to say you guys sound absolutely beautiful singing, absolutely beautiful. Um, when I get to hear the voices, but I think after Michael uh, told, let's just sing this together, hearing you guys sing, there was just a wonderful, wonderful blend. We sort of have a, a rule up here, are the people singing? Um, because it's not about us, it's about us right? And it's to the Lord. It's something that we're celebrating together. My name is Aaron Williams. For those of you who are new and visiting for the first time, I'm one of the elders here. Uh, our lead pastor, Pastor Adam Waters, is uh, taking a few days off and is in the Appalachian Mountains. So I have the privilege of, of sharing with you guys. I need the Lord's help. Let's ask him. Lord, thank you so much for... Um, Jesus, for the gift you've given to him, in him, the hope you've given us in him, and the chance that we have to walk together in love. And today, Lord, we're going to be looking at some difficult scriptures, and I need your help. I pray that you'd open them up to us and give us spiritual wisdom and understanding and insight, and that you draw applications with your Holy Spirit in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we looked and we saw that loving God requires the exercise of every facet of our being. Loving God requires absolute surrender. And loving God necessarily leads to the love of others. And I was listening to those points, and there was this weighty sense of how can that happen in my life, right? We were looking in the first part of the series about how God loves us. And now we've been turning our attention to how we love God. And when you put things in stark terms like that, there's a part of us that knows that that is needed, that that should be our response, but there's somehow a different reality that seems to take place in our heart that resists that. So I was wondering, and, and this is personal for me because um, I have found it difficult in my life to love God with the kinds of affections that I know God requires of me. Um, in my college years, I would look and I would see other people uh, celebrating God in worship and in music and in other kinds of way, and I would hear various kinds of dramatic stories, and it always seemed inaccessible to me. I couldn't, I couldn't make myself <laughs> love God and worship God. And so 
how could I experience it? But I knew that it was, it was, it was needed. Um, and so uh, there was part of me that also wanted other things. Uh, I studied uh, physics, um, and I liked inventing and making things. Yeah, those of you who know me. <laughs> Uh, and so uh, there were things when I was studying at University of Chicago that I was really interested in pursuing, and I wanted to get my you know advanced degree and maybe invent something you know great. And you know, I, ministry was sort of a part in there. I wanted to get my PhD in physics and then maybe go to Moody Bible Institute and uh, go through their Moody Aviation program and you know go on to the mission field as a, a missionary pilot, but there was that sense, oh, I've got the degree to fall back on it. So it began to disturb me because I realized that as I was focusing on uh, uh, these things that I wanted, that the Lord was somewhat peripheral to those desires. And it didn't mean necessarily that the desires themselves were bad, but the place that I was giving them was greater than the place I was giving God. And so... Growing up, one of the things that I'd always wanted was, you know, make wise decisions. And there was this verse, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And, and it bothered me because I could see that I was inconsistent with that. And so I began uh, looking a lot at the scriptures. There were questions that I, I couldn't answer. And as I began to read a lot about it, I began to see a little bit more of the heart of God and what he was like. And one of the things that I could see was that when people followed him, he would do great things for them. He would show himself to them, and he would uh, uh, pour himself into them, and then he would lead them through difficult circumstances. And so uh, I, I wanted some of that, and so there was this tension that was there. Um, we're going to come back to that story in a second, but the journey we're going to take today collectively is a little bit about the how, okay? So last week was what. Now we're going to take a little bit look at the how. And the central point I want today to say is that it's God's love, actually, God's love for us that enables us to live for him rather than ourselves. In other words, it's the act of God's grace in us that produces the fruit of obedience. It's not something that we bolt on and conjure up out of ourselves. Just as God showed us grace and salvation in Christ, he actually imparts a new life in us that then from the the, the force of that life, the reality with us, within us, overflows and spills over into obedience. Take a look at 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. You see how that works? The love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. Right. So that's the, the reality of the gospel. Christ came, his death paid the propitiation for our sins, the covering. But he also united us together with us him in his death and his resurrection so that we're members of him, all right? And out of that, being members and being filled with his spirit, then comes the newness of life. He died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. 
We're going to look at a story today where this unfolds in, in a slightly different way in some of the more uh, general kinds of way, but it anticipates this reality that Christ has gotten us. Jesus, of course, you know, was uh, Jewish, and he was a descendant of uh, a long line of people who had served God, going all the way back to somebody named Abraham. I know you guys are likely with me on this, but <laughs> uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, Abraham was uh, somebody that God chose with a promise, right? If you go back to Genesis 12, the Lord says to Abraham, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so we're going to follow a little bit of that story, and we're going to pick it up to a particular point where Abraham has to make a really difficult decision to follow what God wants rather than something that, 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 that he wants, right? But this is anticipating Jesus and his death and resurrection because, again, through you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Jesus was a descendant of Abraham. Okay, so what is Abraham's background? What, 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 how did how this begin to unfold in his life? Okay, so many years earlier, um, Abraham had been in this land. God says, go to this land. I'll make you a great nation, right? He goes to that land, and God says, not only am I going to make you a great nation, but I'm going to give you this land and to your descendants forever. The problem is, is that he doesn't have any children, right? And the second problem is, is that his wife, Sarah, or Sarah at the time, Sarai, she's barren. She can't have any children. And they are old. Abraham, when he gets called out to Israel to, to go there, is about 75 years old, and Sarah's about 10 years younger, so she's 65, right? And so they're in the land, and various problems happen to them. And, you know, there's various diversions down to Egypt and stuff like that. But uh, they keep coming back to this area, and God keeps reaffirming these promises to them, right? Well, Abraham is wondering about this. Um, and uh, he says to God, how is it that I'm going to have descendants seeing, you know, how, how's, how are you going to fulfill this given the fact that I don't have any descendants, right? So, um, Genesis 15, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram, I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he, Abraham, believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. So Abraham gets this promise, Hey, not only are you going to inherit, the, your descendants going to inherit the land, but it's going to be somebody that comes forth from you. So um, Abraham, with some various circumstances, has, does indeed have a son, Ishmael. But then God further clarifies the promise. See, because Sarah was the one who was barren. So now they're approaching close to about 100, Abraham's around 100 years old or so, right? And, and Sarah's around 90. And God further clarifies to uh, Abraham, he says, As for Sarah, your wife, 
You shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Then Abraham fell in his face and laughed and said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of 12 princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. So God gives this amazing promise to Abraham that his descendants are going to inherit the land. And then Abraham's like, yeah, but I don't have any. And so he goes off and has Ishmael. And then God clarifies it and says, no, it's going to be through Sarah, your wife, who had been barren. And that's exactly what happened in Genesis 21. The Lord took note of Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age. At the appointed time which God had spoken to him, Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. <laughs> In verse 7, and she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in this old age. So God has shown Abraham extraordinarily, extraordinary loving kindness, right? And if you look at the progression of Abraham's behavior over time, you can see sort of this enlarging of his heart and his view towards God. When he's first there, he sacrifices here, then he goes sacrifices other places like God there, you know. And, uh, you know, he goes down to Egypt because there's a famine in the land. But over time, he begins getting more and more sort of a, a picture of what God is like. And you can begin to see evidence of a change that is happening in his heart. But then something challenging happens, something unexpected and that's what we're going to pick up today in Genesis 22. God comes to Abraham, and he says, verse 22, sorry, chapter 22, verse 2, he said, Take now your son, your only son whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Nothing can prepare Abraham for that. Nothing can prepare us for that. If you've grown up in the church, this story, you might be familiar with it, and, and you, you might think, oh, you know, I, I'm sort of familiar with that story. I think we forget how difficult and provocative this statement is. And I, I was in a class um, uh, years ago on this uh, at a secular school, and this was deeply troubling and arresting to people in the class. I saw grown men crying over this because it just seems so inconsistent with everything that has happened before. How can God be asking this thing of Abraham when he's given him uh, all of these promises, right? So we're going to take a little bit uh, closer look at that and, and see exactly how Abraham responds to that because it's telling of the work that God has done in his heart. Okay, so the first thing is God 
gives him this command. It says, after these things, God said to Abraham, take your son, right? And that take your son there has a, a, a softening of the command. It's this little particle in Hebrew called na. <laughs> and that sort of softens the command. And that command is only, that's only used a few times by God in the whole of the Old Testament. And every single time it's used, it is an outrageous thing that God is asking. It's like saying please. It's a polite way of saying it that almost recognizes that the person you're saying it to might say no. So God, in some sense, recognizes Abraham might say no to this particular request. But the command is more outrageous than that, right? It's incomprehensible because he says, your son, your only son. Was Isaac Abraham's only son? No, he had had Ishmael. Now, admittedly, he had sent Ishmael away, right, to make room for Isaac at his wife's request. But... By saying your son, your only son, it's saying something very specific. It's putting the focus here on this person who is the promised heir. He's going to be the one that I'm going to make into a great nation. So you're asking me to give him up. How is that possible? It seems incomprehensible. The command, though, is also personal and cutting. Your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. Laughter, the gift, the one that they had the big feast weaning him from, right? So this is a very difficult command, and it's also costly. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. Abraham knew exactly what that meant. A burnt offering was a very specific kind of a sacrifice. It wasn't the sort of thing that you did on a whim, okay? Um, it's gross, but I'll say it for the weight of the, of the command. Uh, you slit, you, t you, you bound the sacrifice, you slit its throat, you dismembered it, and you burned it, okay? And that's what he's asking him to do, but not here in this other land, Moriah. So it anticipates that there's going to be a process involved in that. If you're Abraham, what are you thinking? What are you feeling, Right? Do you begin to wonder how God could ask for such a thing? Do you begin to wonder uh, if uh, he's uh, inconsistent with his word? Is he uh, untrustworthy? Is he unloving? Right? Is he uh, unaware? Is he insensitive? You can picture any of a number of different emotions. And then, of course, you begin to think to yourself, uh, Isaac, I'm going to lose him. This precious son of mine, you begin to think then also of the effects of that, the implications. What will my wife say? What about my family? And he had quite an extended family in there. What's going to happen to Isaac? And then, of course, what about the inheritance? God asked Abraham to do something extraordinarily difficult after God had shown him a lot of loving kindness. How does Abraham respond? How would we respond? Now, I want to say, <laughs> could you know which one? <laughs> I want to say that, that for our modern sensibilities, this particular one request of child sacrifice seems like something that is just, it's absolutely horrific. To soften it just a little, back in Abraham's day, it was 
much more commonplace. The law hadn't yet been given not to do that, which incidentally was a law that was later given to the Jewish people. So this was actually within the realm of something that other gods in the area, so-called gods, would have asked for. Kids were viewed as your, um, your possession. So it, although it strikes us with modern sensibility, we could get into some of the, the, the whole like moral issues of, you know, you know, it seems like God doesn't want us to kill, like he said in Genesis, yet he's, he's doing it. It's softened a little bit from that, okay? But at the same time, I don't want it to take away the whole force that this is a particularly difficult request. But it raises the stakes on God's ask. And so what I want us to think about is when God asks us to do something difficult, okay, not sacrifice a child, okay, but in terms of the desires of our heart that are deep-seated desires, the desire for meaning, purpose, and value, and legacy, the, the desire for careers, the desire for riches, the desire to be liked, right? All those sorts of things. When God asks us to do something that causes one of those things to be threatened, what is our response, right? Um, and what is going on in our heart? Um, if you were like me, they were not favorable. Going back to that story, when I was at University of Chicago, as I began to study the scriptures and I wanted to follow God, because I could see the way he did other people, I came to the point, I, yeah, I want to I trust you, I want to walk with you. And of course, what happened, right? Things went great right away. No, opposite. Things got really, really tough, right? I was taking some advanced classes, and whether through uh, lack of discipline or just the difficulty or the fact that I was doing so much Bible study, of course, blame God, right? <laughs> uh, uh, my grades began to really suffer. There were other things that I had taken a lot of pride in. I worked in the physics lab. I was building this um, cool microscope that could image atoms called an atomic force microscope, and not many undergrads had that sort of cool thing. And, and, and I took a lot of pride in those things, right? But my grades began to go down. Uh, I, didn't, uh, I was always in the machine shop building things, so my boss, he fired me from that job. Actually, he said, your appointment will terminate. And, uh, <laughs> you know, there were other things, you know, civic virtue. I got in trouble with, uh, uh, in, in, in Elmhurst for shooting a slingshot in one of our parks. Uh, <laughs> it's true, it's true. And, the, and, and even my sense of, of, of spirituality, it just felt very, very dark. I didn't feel like I was able to uh, be holding fast to God the way others had in the Bible, right? And so it seemed like it was a very dark time. And what was my response? God had shown me this love and kindness and revealing himself to me, and yet when the, the screws began to get tightened, I got so angry with God. I was standing in the shower, and I just started listing off all the things. I was like, I trusted you, and you had done this and this and this, and you've ruined this and you've ruined that, right? Isn't that what happens when God gives us a difficult command? At the sign of first trouble, we began to sort of impugn negatively on the character of God. I knew, I knew I couldn't trust you. I knew that you were unloving. I knew that you were unfaithful. And all of the, the doctrines we have about God's love for us, and we sometimes we just throw them out the window, don't we? The things in our heart's attitudes that we have in our heart, when things go difficult, or when God gives us a difficult command, can be very, very revealing. What are some of the difficult commands that God has given us? If you need a few, you can go to the Sermon on the Mount. They're hard. Love your enemies. <laughs> Pray for those who persecute you. You tried? 
<laughs> right? Uh, don't lay for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust corrupt, but lay for your trolls, uh, treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't corrupt. Loose paraphrase, right? Don't be anxious for your life, what you will eat or what you will wear, for your Father knows that you need those things. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these will be done to you. Or how about the one about anger? Or the one about lust? Or let your yes be yes and your no be yes. Somebody's saying, I agree with you. And, and, and we begin to hit those things, and suddenly we feel stripped of those things. And when we see God saying, I, was, I knew he was a killjoy. Take that one about the money. You know, I remember talking to somebody and they're, oh, I don't like that. <laughs> right, because God wants you to do something that shows where your heart affections are. Right? Okay, what is going through Abraham's mind? Probably a lot of difficulty. What it goes through our mind and our hearts when God asks something difficult. I just want you to take an inventory right now. Think about the difficult ask that God has on you and what is your heart response? What is our heart response to that? Jesus said a man speaks out of that which filled the heart and indeed our actions flow out of it. So how does Abraham respond? The first thing in, let's take a look at Genesis 22.3. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son, and he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. So the first thing is that Abraham acts based on what God tells him, not on what others had to say. He didn't go consult his, you know, his myriad of family members, his wife, right? He acts based upon what God tells him. And if you look, he rose early in the morning, so he acts immediately, right? He makes preparations so that he can obey. He saddled his donkey. He took two of his young men with him and Isaac, and he split wood because he doesn't know where he's going. He might need wood there, right? Um, can't go to Walmart and just buy it. Uh, he, he avoids distractions, right? He, he, he doesn't go into all of the, the nuance. He doesn't stall for time, right? Um, and then he sets out. It's an amazing response. Maybe he's uh, thinking, well, we'll get the ball rolling on this, and over time, you know, we'll sort of deal with the consequences. But there's a certain resoluteness to it. When God asks us something, how quick do we respond to do it, right? How inclined are we sort of to say, well, let's find out what other people say, or uh, let's, you know, sort of think it over a little bit and, you know, maybe take a little bit of time, right? We, we sort of do this game. Well, Abraham, he acts immediately based upon what God wants, right? Um, the story goes on. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes. This is uh, Genesis 22, verse 4 through 6. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked together. So it takes several days for them to go there. Can you imagine Abraham over time? Time has something that it does to you when uh, you're in thinking about a difficult thing ahead of you. You begin to sort of play it out in your mind. If God is such a sacrifice, Isaac, you know, maybe in a moment you can sort of uh, uh, give in to it, if you will. But time, 
allows you to think about what it is that you're doing. You're traveling together with this person who is your beloved son every moment of the way, knowing what it is that God has asked you to do, and he isn't yet in on it. You're thinking of that first uh, uh, time he was born. You're thinking of the laughter, the joy. You're thinking about the time that he uh, had his first little taste of chocolate. I remember my niece, I gave her some chocolate and, you know, never had it before. And, you know, you know like there's a startle look that, that you have. And you're thinking about that. You're thinking about the first, uh, the, uh, you know, word, the first time that they walked. There's something deeply personal here. Um, in addition, though, you're walking through a sort of wild, remote area. Uh, and it's a mountainous area, right? The land of Moriah. And I'll go to the mountain, I'll show you. <laughs> if you guys have ever been on a walk, walk in the mountains, you know that it is a rigorous thing. I'm seeing some people smile. <laughs> uh, the mountains can be very demanding on you, and it's physically uncomfortable, right? Um, I like backpacking. I went on some wonderful trips with the college students. The wilds are a rigorous place. Um, I was uh, also on one with my brother in uh, Banff, Canada, and uh, there's this gravel road that just went way, way, way up, and uh, Banff, Canada was a, a little unnerving to go to because it was sort of a major grizzly bear area, right? And, and so uh, the road we were going on was this, actually this major grizzly bear thoroughfare. We thought it was okay to hike it. Um, but <laughs> that road went from there to this other small little pathway that went way, way, way back. Okay, we're talking like a day back in the woods off that, that, that gravel road. And it's incredibly rigorous. You're wearing this, this pack that's, you know, 30 pounds or something like that. And I know for some of you that's lightweight. <laughs> uh, and you're hiking up this area and the sun is beating down and you're, you're out of breath because the altitude is high and you're hungry because you're eating some terrible broccoli cheddar cheese thing that was not suitable. And, you know, they're like... Things are off, right? But moreover, there's the pressing surrounding nature of, of, of the countryside. We, we stopped at this one um, campsite, and um, we'd gotten there a little bit earlier, and it was, uh, <laughs> it, I guess it had rained, so the fire was kind of miserable. I was really working to get it going, right? And finally, my brother, he's like, I'm just going to go to bed. It was like 2 in the afternoon. And he goes to the tents that are way away in the woods, and uh, I'm just sitting by the fire. And for whatever reason, I thought it'd be good to read this book, um, <laughs> True Story of bear attacks, who survived and why. <laughs> and I am, I am alone in Bay of Canada, and like, I'm reading this book, and I'm like, you know, beginning to look around, and you know, this is kind of unnerving here, yeah. And uh, so after a few minutes, I was like, I'm going to go to bed too. <laughs> so I went and I joined him. You know, later that night, uh, as the rain was sort of moving, it, there was a, a time when it, it got like quiet, and all of a sudden I, I woke up startled, and I see my brother erect up and down in the bed, and he goes, did you hear that? And I was like, yeah. You know, I was just waiting for the bear outside, you know. Um, there wasn't any, although I swear that I saw some bear footprints the next day. But the mountains are, are difficult places. You're, you're under a lot of pressure. And that's the situation that Abraham finds himself in this. He has a lot of time to think. But he's also under a lot of adversity, right, of uh, carrying these supplies and the preparations without a lot of people that are there. He has time to contemplate God's command and the cost. What's it like when we have time to contemplate God's command and the cost? 
Abraham was going through physical discomfort, which makes his resoluteness all the more remarkable. What's it like when God gives us command and we go through physical difficulty? Moving on, Genesis 22, 7 through 8. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Abraham acts based on God's trustworthiness, not on what he fully understands, right? God said to command, to sacrifice Isaac. Abraham knows in the back of his mind that somehow God has to fulfill that command to make descendants through Isaac. How are those two things reconcilable? He doesn't know, but he acts on it. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. What does Abraham think is going to happen? Does he think that he's going to go through with it and somehow God is going to raise him from the dead? Does he really think that God is going to stop the process here? The tension really is drawn out. If you look at it, the details become very, very specific and they they focus down. Imagine what we're seeing. Abraham and Isaac alone. Isaac has carried the wood up. He's probably teenage because to carry the wood you have to be old enough to do it. I know tradition has him younger. He's probably teenage. So in some sense he's complicit in this. Right? And we picture Abraham beginning to take alter things. It's a drawn out time, right? Stone by stone, right? And then he takes the wood and he begins to arrange it. And Isaac is watching him, wondering when, how. And at what point does the turn happen? At what point does he call Isaac over and say to him, you're the sacrifice? At what point does he go through the process of tying his hands? How does that conversation go down? Abraham acts based on God's power, not his own ability. For God to fulfill it, he has to believe that God has to do something that no one else could do. And if God is not going to do that, and he doesn't believe that, why would he go through with the sacrifice in the first place? Because his best chance of holding on to Isaac is to keep him. And besides, if God is not able to do that, then God's not trustworthy. And Abraham has a keen sense of God's justice. When we obey God, and God asks us to do a difficult thing, what goes on in our mind about the character of God that causes us to begin to depend upon him and his word and what he told us rather than what other people tell us? that causes us to depend upon what he wants rather than how we feel, that causes him to, uh, us to depend upon uh, his trustworthiness rather than what we understand, that causes us to trust God's power and what he can do rather than our own ability to pull it through. That's what's going on, it seems, in Abraham's heart. 
what goes on in our heart. Abraham knew God. Do we know God like that? We don't actually know what's going on a lot in Abraham's mind, but his actions are very, very telling. And now comes the difficult part for us. When I was at University of Chicago, my heart was exposed through the words that I said when I began to rail accusations back at God. You have done this, you have done this, you have done this. I trusted you and you've ruined up everything, right? God did something, though. The words of Scripture came to mind, you have little faith, why do you doubt? And that was a turning point for me because when, he, when those words came to mind in my heart, I saw something of his love and his holiness and his character that made me realize something of my my wrongness, but at the same time, my need for him, my love, his love for me, and the way that I needed him to work in my life in a way that I couldn't actually have. For us, when God asks us to do something difficult and we begin to wander, do we go back to God and depend upon him to do something in us? How does the story unfold? But the angel of the Lord called him from heaven and said, Genesis 22, 11, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. When we obey God, God is honored. Now I know that you fear God since you've not withheld your son, your only son. When we obey God in our own lives and he, we do the difficult things that we ask us, we show something not only about our um, our. our, our sort of our resoluteness and obedience, but our heart affections towards God and our view of his character. Abraham was able to do what he did because of the perspective he had of God, and, and the actions came out of the flow from the heart. But that heart that he, that he had was one that believed in the love of God, in the goodness of God, in the trustworthiness of God, in the faithfulness of God, in the wisdom of God, even though he didn't see it at the time. When we obey God, we do similarly. We, we lift up God and we demonstrate the change that he has brought in our heart um, by virtue of our obedience. It also comes with a reward. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. The language here is, now I'm going to really bless you. He's going to promise a blessing before. Now I'm going to really 
bless you. God reaffirms everything that he had said earlier, but he begins to augment it and add on to it. So not only is God honored when we obey him, but God rewards um, our obedience. And the reward of our obedience is the blessing that he brings on other people. Um, after I asked God and said, I want to live the life of trusting you, and after those difficulties came into my life and I began to blame God, God allowed me to see a little bit more of his character. And as a result of the seeing of his character, a change began to take place in my heart that caused me to begin to want to obey him. The way it played out for me personally was I went home, I graduated college, I lived near Elders Park, about a mile south of here. And uh, I could see in a bulletin uh, an advertisement for teaching fourth graders. And uh, there was a terror of a class. There were like 10 students, and, and like five of them would have been the wildest in their, in their class alone, and I had, there were five of them, right? So this is like a terror. And uh, I began to feel this conviction that this is what God wanted. But again, there was still this issue. Oh. And so I was talking to one of my friends, and, uh, and I was telling him, this is the sum of my great learning. I said, I don't see what's in it for me. <laughs> uh, he had the, the, the good presence of mind to say, uh, well, maybe you're not going for what's in it for you, but what you can give other people. Kind of like God's command, love your neighbor as yourself, right? right? And there was a sense I had of, oh, yeah, but it's a small church. Am I going to, you know, okay, I'll be honest. Am I going to meet somebody, right? <laughs> uh, and you begin to sort of wrestle with this. You know, it isn't one of the big churches that has thriving ministries and all this sorts of stuff. And you began to say, oh, what's in it for me? Maybe you're not going for what's in it for you, but what you can give to other people. And so I had a sense of, oh, I think that maybe the Lord wants this. And so I began to think about it, and finally I had this moment where I said, I'll go if you go. And that was it. And of course, teaching fourth graders leads to them becoming junior hires, high schoolers, so then I got involved with high school, and then they become college students in college, and they have parents, so you teach parents, etc. And I can tell you that, that God has been faithful over the years. And I regard it as something that God did for me because it was so unlikely given the aspirations I had to invent something or to have this great career or this thing to instead start a small company with my brothers that went out of business and get involved in a youth group. It turned out very differently. But I think about the best years of my life and they have been the years of blessing that God has given by spending time with other people, right? So when God asks us to do something, if you're like me, we maybe have all sorts of wrong responses. But that response is telling something about our heart. And our way of going about it, well, I just need to sort of muster up more grit. No, 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 no. We need to take a new, fresh look at what Jesus has done for us and allow God to work in our heart in such a way that, that the view of who God is 
begins to be enlarged and we understand something of his love for us, something of his wisdom, something of his power, something of his graciousness. That's what faith is confidence in the character of God, right? You trust God when you know that he's loving and he has your best interest in mind because you don't need to steal it for yourself. You trust God when you know that he's powerful because you know he's going to be able to do something that you can't do. You trust him when you know that he's wise because you see that he's, he's got a much better perspective than you do and he knows how to work things out, right? You trust him when, with, with uh, his goodness because he has good ends and, and the list goes down and down. Faith is something that comes from the revelation of the character of God. Of course, the great revelation for us is the one that Jesus gave us. So going back to our key verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15, for the love of Christ controls us Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. If you're here today and you're thinking about uh, obeying God and it seems difficult, look at Christ. Look at what he's done for you. Do you realize that um, you are part, if you believe in him, part of him and his spirit lives in you. When Abraham was willing to give up Isaac, something amazing happened. Uh, people were forged that had a couple of things. One, the promise God had given to them that they would become a great nation, right? A supernatural attendance to it because God gave it through a miracle, but also a shared father-son where both father and son were willing both to give up that very dream and legacy and give it back to God who had given it to them out of a trust in his character. Every wedding after that, every birth after that, every family after that, every festival, every music was there because God had done a double miracle in first giving Isaac and then giving it back. And now there's a shared thing where Abraham, Isaac, and God and their descendants know that God is at the center. We have that same legacy in Jesus. Let's look to him as the basis of the one who works in our heart to enable us to obey him so that we serve in the strength that God supplies, that God would get the, floor, the glory, like it says in 1 Peter 4.11. Lord, you've done so much for us, and we need your help to keep our eyes fixed on you. Um, today, Lord, if there are people that are deeply wrestling with your love and your goodness, I want to ask that you would reveal your love and goodness to them in Jesus. I pray, Lord, today that you'd sharpen your... Our, sense of your commands so that we don't merely dismiss them but we attend to them not out of a sense of self-fulfillment of oh look what I've done but out of a genuine sense that uh, if we love you we'll obey your commands and you're the one who's been working in our heart to cause us to love you so I pray Lord you know where each of us are today and Lord I know that <laughs> I know I've spoken imperfectly I just want to ask that you'd with your Holy Spirit, bring deep conviction in people's hearts as they remember the story of Abraham and his willingness to love you first. And that when you ask us to love the same, 
that you'd begin to see the stock that you, you've sort of cut us from in, in, in Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Brother Wayne. So we're going to have communion today. <clears throat> and even what I just said is a misnomer. Because for centuries and centuries and centuries and centuries, communion wasn't a ritual, a religious ritual. It is who we were. We were a communion of believers. We're the communion. The story that we heard today, to me, is amazing. It's, it's God picking up the kind of the, uh, the cloth or the the pulling back the curtain so that he could show you what he was thinking, what he was going to do. Did you hear that where it says, take your son, your only son, the son whom you love? Didn't we hear that somewhere else? When the, the clouds opened and a voice came out of heaven and said, this is my son, the son whom I love, my only son. And did you see how the, the son of the father carried that wood to the sacrifice, the mound? Didn't the son of the father carry his cross to the mound where he would lay down his life? You know, the word says that we all take of one cup. And that cup is, is his blood. And because of that, we all share in this one cup. You know who the cup is? It's Jesus. And then it says, because we all partake of one loaf, that we're all one body. And that loaf is Jesus. You know, and, and I mean, for centuries, people have been you know, what does this mean? The, you know, what happens to the, the bread and, and the wine? And, and I'm not going to say here, I don't know, except I do know this. I know that Jesus is looking at me, looking at everyone who wants to follow him, and say, you, your life, I'm your food. I'm the thing that sustains you, and I will sustain you forever. There's no other place you have to go. And, and then there was no ram caught in a thicket for Jesus. In fact, he went willingly to sacrifice. He said, the gift I give you is my body, so you don't have to give yours. I'm going to give my blood so that you don't have to give yours. That's good news. That's good news. And then on the night he was betrayed, it says, Paul says, that he took bread and he broke it and he gave it. And he said, this is my body given for you. Don't forget me do this in remembrance of me. Don't forget me. And then when the supper was over, he took a cup and 
He said, this is a cup of my blood. I want to give my blood so you don't have to. Don't forget me. It's the blood of a new promise, a God-sized promise that's never going to be broken. It's a cup of a blood that gives life, forever life. This is something that the family of God does. It's some, something that the family, that um, uh, those who have received Jesus and have been given the right to be called daughters and sons of the living God, that's what we do. It's not for people who don't believe. But I know if Jesus was standing here, he would not say, if you don't believe, don't come up here. I think what Jesus would say is, I want you to believe and come up here. <laughs> so open up your little uh, packet of bread. Peel open the, the top part, and there's a little piece of bread there. We'll pretend like we just broke it off a big piece of bread, okay? Jesus, we want to thank you so much that you gave your body so that we would not have to. We want to thank you that um, because of who you are and what you've done, we are one together. We actually participate in your body and we become part of your body. So we take this with great thankfulness and with great reverence. And we take this together as brothers and sisters in Christ. take the, the cup, fruit of the vine, fruit of the grapes, representing your blood, and we drink it in honor and reverence of you, saying that you are the one who sustains us, you are the one who gives us life, and not just for today, but for every tomorrow to come forever. We thank you so much for this, we take it in the name, your name. Pastor Adam here. Well, I want to thank you for tuning in to Grace Bible Church, and I would love to hear what you thought of today's program or of ways that we can be praying for you and with you. So check us out on social media at GBCL. Also, if you would like to support our ministry, you can give securely at our website at www.gbclm.org. Now remember, God loves you, and so do we.